The question of how do you see me is an important question. And we all have a desire to be seen. And to be seen for who we really are. And this video for me was very impactful as it talks about uh, uh, people who are new to our country and even new to our city of Saskatoon and just some of the unique challenges that might be there and some of the stereotypes that sometimes are uh, fought against in one way or another. And so the longing to be seen is something that is, I think, inherent in every one of us. We want to be seen for how God has uniquely created us. We want people to understand us more deeply and more accurately. And again, that is a big part of this series is to hear each other's stories more fully. So we've had two weeks where we've been talking about God's story and uh, trying to understand a bigger picture of God's story so that our own story can be found in the context of that. And one of the things that we see in God's story is that God is a God who sees us. God is a God who pursues us, and he pursues us with our love, and he sees each one of us intimately in very real ways. And uh, the story of Hagar, if you read the story in Genesis, is a story that encourages us and reminds us that God is a God who truly sees and pursues us. And if you remember that story, for those of you who are familiar with the story of Abraham and Sarah, and they try to take things in their own hands, they didn't necessarily trust God's plan and his timing that they were going to have children and descendants, so they had this idea that what if Hagar, the maidservant, has a child with Abraham? But then things kind of go sideways, and there's this opposition between Hagar and Sarah, and Hagar is sent away as the slave or the maidservant. And it's really a story in many ways of oppression in one form. And then she goes and she is desperate, alone, and feeling abandoned. And then in Genesis 16, verse 13, there is this beautiful picture where the angel of the Lord comes to meet her and find her and pursue her and reminds her of God's promises even to her. And then this line, it says, Thereafter, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her. And she said, You are the God who sees me. And she also said, Have I truly seen the one who sees me? And what's interesting is if you, if you keep reading, there was a well that she was sitting beside. And it says how she named that well. That well was named the well of the living one who sees me. And so this is part of God's story. Is that God is a God who sees us. God is a God who pursues us and who loves us intimately for who we are. But also we want to hear each other's stories. We want to be able to reflect on our own stories, what we're referring to as my story. We also want to hear your story, the story of one another, and we want to do that intentionally. So this morning we're going to do a variety of different things and uh, try to cover a lot of ground. One of the things that I want to do at the beginning now is to actually introduce you to an advisory group that's working with me. Um, I'm not working just alone on these things, and I've had uh, people encouraging, speaking into, correcting, challenging, and so on. We all have limitations in this topic. I have many limitations, and so I've asked a group of people to help me see my limitations and my blind spots. And, uh, and, and another limitation is time. And uh, so this group, this advisory group, is also going to help us as a church kind of walk this conversation forward even beyond the limited time that we have for this series this fall. So I want to introduce uh, all four of these people to you, and this morning you're going to get to hear just a little bit from two of them. So first of all, one person in this series uh, who's in the advisory group is Chandra Stiles. 
Many of you know Chandra. Uh, she's our youth and young adults pastor here at Attridge. Chandra is a white woman who is passionate about how we should approach the issues of social justice because of our faith and who is also learning to parent in a non-biological and biracial family. Chandra is positioned on this advisory team as a learner and as someone who hopes to continue to create safe spaces for conversation about racial justice and the spheres, spheres of influence that she is in. So Chandra is one of those, and many of you know her and have connections to her. Uh, Dallas Pelly is also part of this advisory team. Dallas is an indigenous educator, community builder, and social innovator. Dallas recently completed a B.Ed. through the ITEP program at the University of Saskatchewan. Since leaving school, Dallas has joined a team uh, at Taking It Global as an Indigenous Education Coordinator with the Connected North program. Dallas is passionate about see uh, seeking and creating opportunities for Indigenous youth to have a positive impact on the community. Get Dallas currently resides on Treaty 6 territory in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan with his lovely wife and three sons. They just had a baby. His family uh, also has a lived experience with residential schools. Uh, Dallas's mom, Donna, and his Aunt Judy are residential school survivors. And they actually shared their stories with us as a council and as a lead team last fall at our, at our council retreat, and it was very powerful. And I, on a personal level, I just really believe, too, that, that God has positioned Dallas as a bridge and a peace builder in this whole story. And we'll hear from Dallas uh, more in the weeks ahead. Uh, third person is Claver. Claver, do you want to come on up here? And I'm going to introduce Claire and Claver, and then I have a, a question for him as well. So Claver is here in person. Dallas and Chandra, I think, are watching on live stream, so we just wave. And uh, but this is Claver Kurakura, and Claver was born and raised in Burundi, Africa, and he and his family joined Forest Grove seven years ago, and. Uh, Earlier this year, uh, Claver came on our leadership council, and he became a council member. And so it's been good to get to know Claver over these last number of months in that way. And uh, I asked Claver, and I'm going to have him just speak to this question, why is this series important to you? And what is it that you hope for, even now as a leader in the church, what is it that you hope for for us as a church in this series? So Claver, welcome. Is the green light on? Should be good. Hello. There you go. Thank you, Bruce, for inviting me to speak to the congregation. Um, there are so many reasons why I want to be involved in this project, but I will just uh, give some. I believe in the equal and essential dignity of all people, regardless of ethnicity, age, or class. I believe that we are all created in God's image, and we are to reflect that image in our lives. I am in this project because I have experienced the effects of racism, and I would like to hope that things could improve for my children and the future generations. I trust that the church is a place of good soil for healthy discussions, and he has a key role in addressing this issue, which is still prevalent in our communities. Thank you. Thank you, Claver. 
Claver is also open to answering questions, and so uh, I think there's a number that's going to be on the screen if you want to text questions, and Kevin will be filling them. So later, at the, towards the end of the service, Claver is also going to give uh, some responses if you have questions specifically for him. But before you go, Claver, anything else that you'd want to say to the church just in terms of this topic this morning? Um, thank you. I think uh, for me, as a newcomer, I'm privileged to be at First Grove and having good friends here. I think uh, from what I have experienced is less of what others who don't have a community, church communities, than they experience from my community whom I know very well. Thank you. Thanks, Claver. Brooke, come on up. This is Brooke App. Welcome, Brooke. Uh, let me just uh, introduce Brooke. Brooke is a young mom and a member of our council uh, as well, so she also serves on our leadership council. Uh, Brooke is a Métis woman, meaning that she is a person of mixed Indigenous and European ancestry. And while Brooke has not always outwardly identified as a Métis, it's become an identity that within the past few years she has come to embrace more fully. Brooke identifies as a non-visible minority and believes that her outward appearance has caused her to live a life of white privilege, where she has benefited from all the ways that society privileges white people as a whole, something that a majority of her Indigenous brothers and sisters do not live with the privilege of experiencing. So Brooke, thanks for being a part of uh, this advisory team. It's also great to have you on council as a leader as well. But same for you, the question of, you know, why is, uh, how do you come to this series? Why is it important? And what are some of your hopes for us as a church? Thank you. Um, yeah, I guess, first of all, I've just really looked forward to God's timing in this conversation in our church um, for a number of years. And I'm just really thankful to begin engaging in these topics. Um, I think that there can be a lot of fear and hesitation um, surrounding these things. We want to do the right thing and say the right thing. I know I certainly feel those things, but I think that... Um, if we allow ourselves to give into that fear, that, um, yeah, it will just cause us to not maybe know the Lord um, and others to know the Lord as fully. And so I'm excited to enter into this conversation. Um, as someone who is of a non-visible minority, I've often felt positioned in a really unique place. I grew up very aware of the racial divide between white and indigenous in the um, city that I grew up in, and it caused me to not want to identify as indigenous. I was kind of thankful that I could pass as white. But as I've grown and matured, I've come to realize that I'm actually really proud to be Métis, and that denying that identity, um, just because I can pass as white, does a real disservice to the incredibly resilient and brave people who have gone before me and who still live in and amongst me as well. Um, ultimately, I think that this series is important because I think that um, we can see and experience rac racial reconciliation and racial justice right now. Um, we might not see and experience that to its fullness until heaven, but I do think that we can um, see and experience that now. And in terms of my hopes for our church specifically, um, I just hope that we would be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, and really that we would be asking the Holy Spirit to how to best engage, um, and then that we would be re ready to respond in obedience even when it's far beyond our comfort zone. Um, I also hope that we would be really honest with ourselves and with each other about our stories and the ways that, um, the, the ways that we are involved 
in the past, in the present, in the future um, affect those around us. And even as someone that is a, um, of a minority, I, I'm not exempt from that. I need to evaluate the position of my heart over and over again and ask, where do I hold racist ideas and biases and beliefs? And then lastly, I just long for us to experience greater unity, to know Jesus more through this, and I hope that our church grows in diversity in our church body, our church staff, and our church leadership. That's awesome. Can we say thank you to Brooke and Claver this morning? Thank you to both of you. Um, Brooke will stay involved as much as she can, but she's going to have a baby fairly soon. Uh, but today, Claver, as I said, was, is willing to also answer some questions at the end if, if uh, you would like to ask specifically. So as I said, this morning I'm going to do a number of, we're trying to do a number of things here, introducing this, this beginning of the my story, your story part of it. Um, in the sermon study guide, which we provide every week, which is uh, connected to the sermon and the link to this sermon and the video that will be posted later, in the study guide, it gives you some discussion questions and things to reflect on. As a family, you can do it individually, but also it's intended for small group life in whatever form that that takes for you right now. But I really encourage you to look at some resources that I've put there. And they're just a few, they're a sample of resources. There are so many resources, but I've just given a sample that I think could be helpful to read. And the ones that are there this week are primarily have to do with black and white issues, uh, and mostly from the North American perspective. But uh, it's important to read things that are different than maybe what we normally read. We need to intentionally be looking for and reading things that have a different view than we might have. And so you may not agree with everything that you read. You may find that certain things trigger you, and that's okay. It's important to process that. So one of the articles, for instance, in there is a short book review by a black theologian named George Yancey, and it's a book review on a book that is written about white fragility, where he both affirms and also critiques uh, this book, and so he has a, a review on that. Another uh, link that is in the resources is a podcast by uh, Albert Tate and Nicole Martin uh, that is a very helpful introduction into some of the issues, and especially as it relates to the black population in the United States. Albert Tate is a pastor and speaker. Nicole Martin is the director of U.S. Ministry for the American Bible Society. And again, just really encourage you to have a look for those uh, resources. Uh, one book that I've been reading is a book by the author Drew Hart, and it's called The Trouble I've, Trouble I've Seen. Uh, Drew uh, comes from an Anabaptist tradition, which I found interesting, and he is a blogger, a pastor, and a theologian who writes from his own personal experience as a black man in the United States who grew up in Pennsylvania. Um, and so he's also written a more recent one called Who Will Be a Witness? And so his perspectives have definitely challenged me, made me uncomfortable, uh, but made me think more deeply around this topic. And one of the things that, that Drew says that we've already talked about, but he, he says, and I love this quote, he says, loving our neighbor, welcoming the excluded, and seeking first to listen and understand before speaking are basic Christian tenets that have often been ignored. And that's what what uh, Brooke just mentioned and what she shared as our hopes is this very same sentiment. And oftentimes it, it's harder uh, to hate people when we know them personally, isn't it? it? It's often so much easier when you sort of uh, objectify people in a certain way or make stereotypes or make caricatures of people. And that's where so often the, the challenges come in these relationships and where racism can surface. And so Hart argues, and I would agree, that we need to be able to more clearly see what blackness and what whiteness and even indigenous means in our cultures. Because, you see, each of these have far 
deeper meanings than we often think about or what we've seen on the surface. And one of the things that's been interesting for me and helpful for me is to understand that even the whole idea of race as we talk about it, specifically in the area if you think about people who are black or people are white, is is really a social construct that has only been developed in the last couple of hundred years. And so those kinds of things of how we identify with whiteness and blackness and all that they entail is something that is actually a more modern thing. Because we don't really see those even as you go back further in history. In fact, even as you read in Scripture, you see that while there are conflicts more around class and sex and ethnicity and religious belief, but the whole idea of color and race is not so much there. If you think even in Galatians 3 where Paul's talking about our identity in Christ and how in Christ he, he says there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. But it makes no reference to color or race in there. And same in Revelation 7, that passage we looked at last week where it talks about this beautiful image of all of the different kinds of people worshiping the king. And it says every nation, tribe, people, and language. Nation, tribe, people, and language. And so it's, it's talking about it in different ways. And so the whole idea and all that it entails of what it means to be black or white, for instance, is just a more recent phenomena that we have to understand its cultural implications. We're encouraging us to do that. And so today we want to get a little bit more specific in what we're talking about when it comes to the word racism and what that looks like. And I'm going to give you some definitions today as well. You know, while racism comes from simply within an individual, it comes from within the evil that resides within an individual's life, it also comes in other forms and from, from other places. It also comes from the use of power or abuse of power from the majority culture. There are ways that it can come in in that form as well. And so power is an interesting thing. The gospel is actually all about power in many ways. It is about power in many forms and how we use it. And power itself is actually neutral. Power can be used for good and power can be used for evil. But power is a very biblical term that we see throughout Scripture in many, many places. And we've been in the book of Ephesians, and today we'll look at a couple of things there as well too. But Ephesians uh, is not so much about racism. In fact, Ephesians doesn't really speak to racism. But it it speaks to issues that are at the foundation of racism because it speaks to things like identity and it speaks to power, very much so. So it's important for us to understand those principles a bit more. So Ephesians gives us a window into this topic of power in very real ways. In verse 119, or chapter 119, it talks about this prayer. Paul is praying for the, the, to understand God's resurrected power. In chapter 3, it talks about the spiritual power of the church in the unseen realms. If you think about chapter 6 of Ephesians, it talks about the spiritual warfare and the battle that is raging and the powers and principalities that are at work. So the whole theme of power is throughout Ephesians on and on. But it also talks about relationship power. It also talks about human-to-human power and how we integrate in that way. For example, in chapters 5, chapters 5 and 6, it gives human examples of power imbalance. And so it's what's known as the house codes. And Paul is talking about, here's how you live spirit-filled lives. And then he gives these three examples, and he talks about husbands and wives, he talks about slaves and slave owners, and he talks about parents and children. 
And what he's talking about is he's talking about natural human relationships where there is a power imbalance. And he's saying, here's how you live in spirit-filled lives, no matter what side of the equation you are in this power imbalance. And so Ephesians and, and what Paul is teaching here speaks very much to power. Because you see, there's, there's always a dominant culture in any country, in any place that you go in the world. There's a dominant culture of some sort, a majority culture. And then there's oftentimes, even in relationships, there's a dominant person or somebody who has more power in one way or another. And so what's important for us is simply to recognize that. Say, okay, what's going on here in this relationship in regards to power? And especially as we've talked about, if we're part of the dominant or majority white culture, as I am here in Canada, it's important for us to think about those things even more deeply. But the reality is, is that majority culture happens again in every place in the world, not just here in North America, but here in North America, it relates mostly to white dominant culture in relation to indigenous people and black people and every other person of color, simply because white European ancestry is the majority culture. Which again just means that for some of us, we have to work harder to understand these stories. We have to look deeper. We have to, again, withhold judgment longer. We have to humble ourselves and ask more questions And pay attention to the advantages and the power that we have, which are sometimes actually hard to see. But we have to see how it is also affecting others. So this is important for us as a church. Another quote from Drew Hart, he says that the church's understanding of racism is frequently too thin, narrow, and deficient for it to be anti-racist in its witness. Our very instincts about what racism is tend to be unhelpful. And so as you look at some definitions of racism, you come to a number of different ones, and I want to just give a couple of samples here today. So if you think of racism from an individual standpoint, at least how we view it in our culture uh, from an individual basis, we might say racism is a personal prejudice or hatred of someone of a different race. Now, that's true. But the challenge with that is that it's very subjective, and the only judge of that would be yourself, of what's going on within your heart, and what the Holy Spirit might do in you in terms of rising up an awareness of that there might be some racist tendencies within your heart that you need to deal with. But it's very subjective, and it's not something that you can see from the outside so much. And so that's one way that you might look at it. But a broader definition of racism would come from the sociology department that takes a little bit of a broader look and approach of how our society is organized and also influenced by race and what the origins of racism are and how does it operate and affect our daily lives. And this approach by some would define it more as a racialized systemic and structural system that organizes our society. So sees it in a broader way, in terms of a bit of a broader perspective of how it can come forward. George Yancey uh, talks about institutional racism in this way. He says, I define institutional racism as institutional forces that have a negative impact on racial minorities, regardless of the personal intentions connected to the shaping of those institutions. And so when we hear these terms, I know for some people, sometimes these, these become trigger points 
and trigger points and challenges around sometimes the endless debates about systemic racism, for instance. Like, is there systemic racism in this organization or culture or whatever the case may be, or institutional racism? And we've seen much of that in the last months. We've heard all kinds of anger and dispute around that, whether it's the RCMP in Canada and the treatment of First Nations people, or whether it's with police and black men and women uh, in the United States, like George Floyd in May and recent rulings of Breonna Taylor's case. We see much debate around these things. But what's, what's not helpful in that debate is to go to either extreme, to defend and get defensive and get to the place that you say, well, no, no, there's no systemic or institutional or cultural racism in anything. Like, that's just not valid. And some people dig in and they push against that. But the other extreme is equally unhelpful, where you see systemic racism everywhere, and using that as the cause of every terrible action, which is also not helpful. And so if there are racist laws, we need to eliminate them. If there are racist practices and patterns and organizations, we need to root them out. But we need to have a much more measured approach of what we often see in the media. So I want to end this morning with just a reflection on self-reflection again, as we think about our own stories. As we've been saying in this series, we want to reflect deeper on our own story and what, what we were calling my story. And this is one of our goals, however we come to this topic. But again, just that those of us who might have advantages or you call privileges, we don't easily recognize them and we don't often evaluate our stories adequately enough. Sometimes because it's just the water that we swim in. But the Apostle Paul has a fascinating story. And we see his story written in the pages of the book of Acts some, and we see his story unpacking and unfolding as he writes letters to the churches. So much of the New Testament is what the Apostle Paul wrote to the various churches that he was pastoring. And, and you get glimpses into his story. Acts chapter 9 gives his own testimony. It's his own conversion story which is an interesting one to read. But in another letter, so in Ephesians is one of the stories that he wrote, but in another letter like Philippians, he goes deeper to reflect on his own life story, the context that he grew up in, and even some of the advantages that he has. And he reflects on this in comparison to his identity in Christ. And he says this in Philippians 3. He says, If someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcision on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. So Paul's starting to reflect. He's reflecting on his own story. So my story, your story, they all matter. And both need to be processed, heard, and understood. And similar to what Brooke and Claver said earlier, I hope and I pray that as a church, we can be a safe place to have these conversations and to hear each other's stories, that we would extend grace, that we would listen deeply, that we would love well, and that we will humble ourselves before the King and know our own story better in the context of God's story. And may God give us grace for that. I want to invite Lisa and Cindy if they would come up, and they're going to lead us in a song. 
And again, a little bit later in the service, you will have opportunity to text in questions that we can either address today or in the weeks ahead. You can text questions to people on the advisory team. Uh, Claver is willing to also answer questions today as well, if you would like. Let me pray. So Lord, I just thank you so much for again what we see in your word and even the Apostle Paul processing some of his own story. Uh, Help us to understand more deeply some of the things that we see in Ephesians about power and identity and how they relate to racism and this topic that we are focusing on now, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would help us to love each other well. I pray that you would help us to know you better and to follow you more obediently. And We thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.